0: Thank you, Justine. So this morning we pick up with our second story of Advent. And this morning we take a look at the story of Mary and Joseph. As we take a look at Mary and Joseph's story, one of the first things you'll see is really the contrast... Between last week's story, we, we have the prophecy of, of two births, but when we take a look at Elizabeth and Zechariah, here's an older couple, advanced in years, uh, a woman who was barren and bearing the shame of being barren, feeling that shame uh, of years crying out to God for uh, a child. And of God miraculously answering that prayer. As Zechariah is praying and he's, he's in the temple serving, an angel appears to him, this angel Gabriel. And, and Gabriel is going to inform him that you're about to have a son. A son named John. And he will be a forerunner. Now contrast that to this story. So within six months, of, uh, and if you know the background, 400 silent years. 400 years where God has not made himself, uh, where we would th- or he has not had a, a prophet. He has not spoken directly to his people. There's, we uh, often refer to these, and if you're familiar with the scripture, as the 400 silent years. These, this is the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, where we pick up with these stories. And the story last week with Zechariah and Elizabeth, and the story of Mary and Joseph, and these birds, is about six months apart. Within the span of six months, God began speaking to his people and speaking in amazing ways. With Zechariah and his Elizabeth was the promise of a child to a barren woman uh, and and a husband in their older age. And specifically, we very clearly get the picture. They say, we're beyond being able to bear children. It's not just the fact that Elizabeth has been barren. we're, We're past the age. Now, with Mary and Joseph... We're coming to a, a completely contrasting situation. We have a couple who is just now uh, uh, getting ready to start their journey together, but they're not even technically married. We would be what we would call engaged. It's, it's called betrothed. Mary, uh, I doubt at this point in time is expecting a son. Neither is Joseph, uh, and so their situation is is the completely reverse. Here is two young uh, Mary or. Two young people about to be married, being informed that their life is about to be changed by a birth, a miraculous birth. And at the end of this passage, if you caught it when Justine read, one of the things that we have is the angel Gabriel is going to narrate and kind of tell us something significant. When Gabriel looks at these two births, he actually tells us what they mean. And he says this nothing, nothing is impossible with God. In both these stories, we see kind of they're united by a a single redemptive thread. A thread that has been running literally since Genesis, when things began to come apart after sin and God's promise. That there is going to be a a descendant, the one that would step on the head of the snake, of the serpent. And it's only now that we begin to really see God begin to unfold these more clearly. And this thread that we see all throughout Scriptures, this redemptive thread, is literally going to come down from the throne room of heaven in the messenger Gabriel, and it's going to come into some pretty insignificant places. It's going to come to some pretty unsuspecting and what we would think of as ordinary people. But these unbreakable promises, these threads of what God is is weaving, give us a glimpse of this beautiful story that God is weaving together to bring us towards this point. This this point we celebrate this morning of salvation. And that plan not only includes Zechariah and Elizabeth, Mary and Joseph, but literally as we sit and we preach this good news about Jesus, that same thread is being unfolded here this morning because God is still at work. And so this morning I want to begin looking at ordinary places, ordinary people, extraordinary God. So let's begin in verse 26 with what I want to call just a very ordinary place. In verse 26, it says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now before we get to Nazareth, just a a few words about Gabriel. Gabriel is one of three angels mentioned by name in the scripture. The other is Michael. And the third is... I was stumped at first because I was thinking, Gabriel, Michael, I know them. Lucifer. We know three angels very specifically. And what's unique about Gabriel, so the other place uh, we see Gabriel was actually in the book of Daniel. Gabriel is uh, oftentimes called the the angel of annunciation. Uh, sometimes you'll hear like a church called uh, the, the church of annunciation. All that simply means is Gabriel's message every time he came was about Jesus. With Daniel, it was about the kingdom. With Elizabeth and Zechariah, it was about the fact that the Savior is getting ready to come and there's going to be a forerunner. This John, who who we would later know is John the Baptist. And this Gabriel comes again here to Mary. We don't know if he appeared to Joseph. There, there's another account of an angel, but the angel isn't named in, in that passage. So here's what I can tell you. Gabriel literally sits at the foot of God and is sent from the throne room of heaven when God wants to dispatch, dispatch a message about Jesus and his kingdom. These might not be the only times we hear from Gabriel. He may have appeared in others, but here's the three times he was named. And every time he is announcing news about the kingdom and about Jesus or his birth. Let's look at Galilee, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I just want you to to maybe help you see this ordinary place. And if you don't recognize Luke and how he writes, then you might miss this. But when it says the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, did you notice he actually gives us two points of reference? If Luke simply said Nazareth, none of his modern readers would hardly know where it was. So he specifically takes the extra step of telling you it was in Galilee so that they had a frame of reference. Remember when people first heard that Jesus was from Nazareth, they had a hard time. Remember the uh, the one very specific comment, can anything good come from Nazareth? One of the things, the, the first things that we run into this account is that God is at work in some what we would consider some pretty insignificant places. The reason I want to point that out is I don't know about you. I grew up in Indian Mills, New Jersey. It, it, was, it was a farming community of a few thousand people. And in fact, it's actually interesting. The Greek only has one word for city, and so they call it a city. But if, if they could choose, if Luke could have chosen a lesser term, this was not a, a, a town, this was a village or less. Nazareth was a handful of people. And this is where, after 400 years, an angel of God shows up and begins to inform people that I'm about to begin to set the world upside down. My kingdom is coming. And God does that in some pretty ordinary places. The next thing I want to take a look at is just two what we could only call very ordinary people. In verse 27, it says, this angel came to, to Galilee, came to Nazareth, and it says, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. But when we come to Joseph, it's, it's not in this passage, but if you read Matthew or Mark, this is where we learn that Joseph was a carpenter. Joseph worked with his hands. He is not a, a person of, of power. He's not a person of influence. He's not coming from a, a place uh, as far as uh, those who would be learned, uh, or learned, or very well educated. Joseph had a vocation. He, he was, uh, he had a trade. He made his living with his hands. And if you read the scriptures, apart from a few references, in fact, a- after Jesus' young, younger years, we hear nothing. We read no next to literally nothing about Joseph. Besides, he's the father of Jesus, and he was a carpenter. Now, the most important piece that you saw is that Joseph was of the house of David. And this is a marker. There's, there's uh, many people who would have been of the house of David. Of the house of David meant that he was from the tribe of Judah the reason it mentions of the house of David is that so Joseph is the descendant of King David. And the reason that this is important, ordinary person, but part of a very uh, specific tribe that God is going to use, is what we call the Davidic covenant. If that language isn't familiar to you, it's just simply the promise God made to David about the fact that one day From David's own line, there would be a king who would rule forever. In fact, so that first promise is 2 Samuel 10, 7 through 11. I'm not going to read that passage. I want to cite from you Psalms. But this this Davidic covenant runs all throughout the Old Testament. We see it in Jeremiah, the prophet. We see it in Isaiah. But I want to read you Psalm 89, 1 to 4. If you have your Bible and you want to read with me, here's the Davidic covenant. And remember, the Psalms are, are the praise songs of God's people. And this, this covenant, the, God's promises to David, were so significant that they wrote songs about them. Because this is uh, what God's people held on to this hope, this promise that He had given. In Psalm 89, verses 1 to 4, it says, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Those promises were coming true right here with this man named Joseph. A man who, who apart from God's work, we would never know his name. He was an ordinary carpenter. He was a person, what we would say, everyone made in in God's image has the the very value of God. But how we give, uh, I would say, how we as a world look at people, Joseph was persona non grata. He was a carpenter. (laughs) More than that, he was a carpenter who lived in Nazareth, who was originally from Bethlehem. This is somebody who we would say, he's an ordinary person who is about to enter into some extraordinary promises and faithfulness that God is going to show his people. Mary, at first, all we really understand about her is that in this passage, twice it mentions that she's a virgin. We know her name, but we don't actually know anything more about Mary as far as her background. And in fact, to say that she was a virgin really would mean she is a truly truly ordinary young Jewish woman. Because a a, a young Jewish girl would not have any intimacy. In fact, she wouldn't be with men until she had been uh, first betrothed and then married. So to say that Mary is a virgin would be to say that, yes, she is like every other Jewish girl. This is the way uh, that they have been taught by God's law and uh, their understanding of marriage is that marriage and intimacy was set aside for the marriage covenant. But this is important, and we'll come back to this fact that Mary truly is a virgin. So we have two ordinary people. Joseph, a carpenter. Mary, a young virgin. Now, into the story, as we look at an ordinary place named Nazareth, and we look at two ordinary people, in verses 28 to 31, we're going to see extraordinary grace. In verse 28 says, And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Let me just come full stop. I don't know what translation you're using, or what you think of when you read this this Term. The word here for favored ones, it's a compound word, but the root word that you probably are more familiar with is grace. This is from the Greek word charis The same word that we use over and over and over again for God's grace is this same word. It's in a compound form, and it means the, the, the one who is the recipient of God's grace. So your, your version might have highly favored one, greetings, O oh favored woman. Uh, it might, I, I don't, Anybody else have a version that's a little bit different? Favored one? Highly favored one? What I want you to see is simply this. And, I, and I, we have to get this truth or you will misunderstand the story. As people... When we read this idea of favor, it's very hard to take out this idea that somebody did something to earn that favor. So, when you think of, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. If in your mind, the immediate association was, Mary was an exemplary young woman, and as a result, that God came and showed her favor, you misunderstand what Luke is saying, and you misunderstand this grace. Mary is simply a recipient. When we, when we think of the word grace, right, let's, let's talk about this. When we think of the word grace, grace literally means undeserved blessing or undeserved favor, which is why uh, a word that we use, uh, oh, favored one, right? I'm not saying Mary was not a, uh, when we read the story of, of Zechariah and Elizabeth, right, it told us they were righteous, I'm not in any way saying that Mary is unrighteous. But one of the things that we have to understand is the way that we look at this person is uh, perhaps a, a sinner. This person is righteous. And if God were to show grace, one person would be more deserving than the other. And if we have this understanding, fundamentally don't understand the gospel or scripture. Let me tell you about a funny story. When I was a kid, uh, being raised in a pastor's home, Uh, Being raised in the church, I would say being pretty much a good kid. One day, and this kind of gets to this idea of favor, I was just thinking, walking along, thinking to myself, early 20s, I want to write a book on favor with God. Thinking, you know, my dad's been a pastor, I've been on the mission field, uh, I see the life of Joseph. Joseph had the favor of God. Uh, I see that Paul uh, certainly had God's God's blessing and favor resting on him. And I started in my mind, make, I wanted to write a book, favor, favor with God. And I wanted to write about how we position ourselves to receive God's favor. I'm glad the book was never written. Uh, one, <laughs> one, because I do terribly at trying to write things. Writing a sermon every week is about as much as I can handle. I'm not a writer. But more importantly, my young mind misunderstood. Because every time I read favor, I understood things I did to basically place myself in this position where I earned God's grace. And if we understand this, then fundamentally we haven't gotten the story right. And we need to get grace right. Because if, if what we see in this passage... If it is something that Mary has done to deserve, and it is not simply undeserved grace and God's favor and blessing, then what we make Christianity to be out, out to be is simply when we do good things, God will do good things back. That is a dangerous thing. That's a man-made religion. A man-made religion is about how we do good things, and when we do good things, God does good things back. That's not the gospel. And in fact, if church is about that, then we fundamentally missed what this idea of grace is. Now, once again, don't misunderstand me. I am not in any way trying to say or, or, or mar Mary's character. In Joseph's character, we know that Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous people. All I'm saying is that righteousness does not earn us the kind of favor God shows. And if it did, then it's just a system. It, we're in the old Catholic system of I do and then God does. I do, God does. And let me f- tell you, folks, all of us will fall after that train. We'll, we'll fall off. We'll never be good enough. There's days where we think we're pretty good. And then there's days you probably know, man, I'm as bad as the rest of them. And if we relate to God and, and you start getting in that cycle of how we pray, I was good today, I'm motivated to pray, I was terrible today, I'm struggling this week, and now, you know, so I stay away from God, then we, we fundamentally misunderstand this. But when you see this word, oh favored one, this is straight grace. Straight grace, the same grace that we translate as grace in all the rest of scriptures, This is the fundamental word. So extraordinary grace. Now I want to next kind of examine this extraordinary child that Mary was promised. In verse 32 it says, He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Now, verses that last, 32 and 33, you caught a glimpse of those Davidic covenant promises again, right? This this ruler who will reign over Jacob's house forever and and there will be no end. Uh, If you're not familiar with why we would use Jacob there, just like uh, it's like insiders for the Jews to say David or Jacob is to talk about promises that God has been making to the Israelite people all along the way. So if we go back in the book of Genesis, God is making promises to Jacob. Who is Jacob? Jacob would have 12 sons. Those 12 sons would be the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those tribes would be Judah. From that line, David would come from Judah. From the line of David would come Jesus. So using this language is really just connecting all of the dots. It's talking about this, uh, how uh, over the house of Jacob, he'll reign over the house of Jacob. He's just talking about Israel as a whole. And his kingdom will be no, uh, of their no end. But this extraordinary child, first and foremost, you just see that he will be great. If you look at the son of the Most High, I'll just make one comment about this extraordinary child. The name Most High actually comes from, so the first time we see this is, you know the story of Melchizedek in the Old Testament. Melchizedek is a, is a king that, uh, remember Abram is traveling back. Uh, Lot his nephew has been captured, uh, he's been taken away, uh, and they have all of his goods. And Abram, whose nephew Lot, who was, was uh, living in another area, rounds up troops, goes after uh, the army, conquers that army, brings back Lot, brings back their children, brings back everything, and brings back their goods. And on his way, there's this king, this king of Salem, who walks out and meets them, and he blesses Abram. And he says... He blessed him in the name of God Most High. This is where the terminology comes from. And it simply means this. The one true God. When, uh, you know, we, when we say God, we recognize God is actually a general term for all, our culture, right? God, small g. So there, there is uh, a, uh, an understanding. So when we say God, we're talking about a being. Um, but yet, there's gods in many religions, right? And so this, this phrasing of the Son of God Most High, it's saying the one true God. The singular God, the Most High God, the God above all gods. This is what the, the clarifying mark. It goes back to Melchizedek. It's, it's drawing on that language, and it's saying this child is going to be extraordinary. This child is the Son of God Most High, the one true God. Extraordinary birth. Let me go to verses 34 and 35. When we move to these verses, you see Mary has a very honest question. And it says, And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? Now, notice this is basically a question of biology. If if you think about it, remember Zechariah asked a question? And there's an interesting contrast. Last week, in last last week's story, Zechariah asked a question. Uh, He didn't believe it. And he was punished. He was disciplined by the Lord. It says, You will not speak. Mary asks a question, and we don't see any kind of discipline. What's the difference? All I can tell you, the the scripture doesn't try to make clear the difference. If I gave you an answer, I would be lying. All I can say is God sees the hearts and knows the intentions. With Mary, she asks a question, and she says, how will this be? It seems like a question of biology, because as she knows and we know, virgins don't have babies. And so it seemed like she was understanding this promise but had a very practical question, which was, I don't understand how this could possibly be since I am a virgin. And maybe in Mary's eyes, this this thought of, of, I'm still betrothed. This, This betrothed means I'm engaged, but we're still not married. And so Mary has an honest question. Now, the way that Gabriel answers this is going to really teach us three foundational doctrines that are absolutely critical. In fact, these are foundational doctrines that if you don't affirm these doctrines, then you're not a part of the the orthodox faith. You would be denying Christianity itself. Those doctrines are the virgin birth, and two doctrines that come with the incarnation. Incarnation is just meaning the fact that God has come to be with us, uh, that he is God incarnate, and that is Jesus' deity and Jesus' humanity. I don't know how well you might know those, uh, those doctrines, but so that I just don't mention them in name, the virgin birth, Jesus' deity, and Jesus' humanity, I want to refer to a resource I've, I've shared with you many, many times. This is called 99 Essential Doctrines. It's just a very helpful and everyday practical language resource, to a place you can go for a sound, solid doctrine. And I'm just going to read to you what it means by the virgin birth, by Jesus' deity, and by Jesus' humanity. First, let's take a look at the virgin birth. This is number 50 in our book, but I'll just read it word for word. And once again, this is a resource I could send you the PDF. I just don't want to mention these things and go over them like you know exactly what I mean when I say the virgin birth, when I say Jesus' deity, and when I say Jesus' humanity. So let me share with you three doctrines that come right out of this text the virgin birth. So says, the Bible affirms that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin. The virgin birth affirms the historicity of the Incarnation. What is the Incarnation? That is that God took on human flesh and was born a man. Where eternal Son of God took on human flesh. The virgin birth is significant and that it serves as a reminder of the Old Testament prophecies, specifically Isaiah 7, while also affirming both the deity and humanity of Christ. If we don't affirm the virgin birth, then we aren't affirming Christianity. This is absolutely critical. This is foundational to the doctrine of what we believe. Next, let's take a look at Jesus' deity. By saying Jesus' deity, what we mean is that Jesus was fully God. Fully God. There's a mystery of Jesus' deity in humanity, but we have to affirm Jesus' deity. It says, Within the person of Jesus Christ, there are two natures. The divine nature and the human nature. Scripture teaches he is fully divine and fully human. His divinity is on display in passages that describe him as being equal with God. The New Testament also points to the deity of Christ by showing how he possesses the attributes that God alone possesses, how he performs works that only God performs, and how he himself claims to be the Son of God. And lastly, Jesus' humanity. In addition to being fully divine, the Bible also affirms that Jesus is fully human, Not only does the Old Testament affirm that the promised one, the Messiah, would be a man, but the New Testament also affirms that Jesus' earthly life bore all the marks of being human. He experienced the circumstances common to living, such as uh, uh, living as a human being, such as hunger, thirst, weariness, sorrow, and pain. Now, you might think, Sam, that's that's basic stuff, and if that's basic to you, praise God that you understand and know. I can tell you, we live in a world where we constantly move away from our foundations, where we accept the teaching of Jesus and the good moral things about Jesus, but we don't accept his deity. We don't accept his humanity. And when we think about things like the virgin birth, it almost becomes like fairy tale, this, this, this myth. And I just want to affirm those and tell you, we absolutely believe in these things and we build all of our Christian faith on doctrines like this that are critical to getting right. And so I want to take the time to you just to make sure you know this isn't myth, this isn't fairy tale. This is God in human flesh, fully divine, fully human, and a virgin birth. And so we have an extraordinary birth. Two more extraordinary things, and then we'll wrap up with our time today in the Word. The next is this extraordinary hope. This is really looking at to how Gabriel himself summarizes what's taking place. In verses 36 and 37, Gabriel informs Mary for the first time something she didn't know, which is, it says, Behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. Remember, Mary didn't know this. For the first time, Mary is receiving news that something miraculous is taking place. Not only has she seen an angel, Gabriel has appeared to Elizabeth, who she knows is beyond the age of childbearing. And it says, in the sixth month with her who was called barren, in verse 37 it says, for nothing will be impossible with God. How does Gabriel summarize these past six months and God beginning to really lay out this redemptive work. Remember this thread that I said literally came out of heaven. Gabriel came down from heaven with this thread of redemption, finally connecting heaven with earth with a plan they didn't previously know and understand. That is, that through these two births, a woman who is barren, who is Im- it's impossible to have a child, it's interesting that we get both. We have the impossibility of God giving a woman who is barren a child and the flip side, we have the impossibility of a woman who's a virgin giving birth to a son. And Gabriel's description is this, nothing is impossible with God. Let me tell you, Gabriel wasn't talking about a barren woman and a woman who is a virgin. Gabriel is looking down through the corridors of redemptive history, and what he's saying is, not only is has God showing you for your own faith, that a woman who is barren and a woman who is a virgin will have a child and God will be using them. But, but nothing is impossible. as talking about what God is going to do through Jesus to take on sin. This is why I wanted you to know those doctrines. Without the virgin birth, we have a Jesus who has a sin nature. With, without Jesus being human, he can't take on sin and die on a cross. Without Jesus being God Himself, there is nobody who would have been righteous. No human could have been sinless. And so what Gabriel is talking about, yes, he's opening Mary's eyes and Elizabeth's eyes to say, nothing physically is impossible. God can give birth to a, a, uh, or give birth to a son in a lady's old age and to a virgin, but nothing is impossible meaning that redemption is going to take place. Through human people. God marries a story of heaven and Him in His glory, and He comes and He takes on human form and joins us. Nothing is impossible for God. And lastly, let's look at Mary's extraordinary response. In verse 38, Mary simply says this Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. The response that you see is when somebody actually knows and sees and comprehends grace. Because Mary's immediate response, and by the way, Mary didn't go away and ponder and wonder and come back and then offer her life to God. Mary understood as the angel Gabriel has revealed, that when she understood the grace that God was showing her, here's what Mary did. She took her life, she laid it at God's feet, and said, God, you do as you will. I'm your servant. There's nothing in this world apart from God's grace that can evoke that response. When we truly understand God's love for us and His grace, what it does in us is it creates love for God. In fact, a love so great that we would be willing to say, I'm laying my life down at your feet because this is the only natural response that makes any sense in my mind as I comprehend God's goodness and grace and love. And just so you recognize how hard that is, when you when when you enter a marriage... Uh, Covenant and commitment, yes, you have the emotions of love, but the reality is, man, we have to die daily to ourselves because truly laying our lives and and my desires at another's feet means I don't get what I want all the time, and that's hard. It means I'm inconvenienced. It means I might be uncomfortable. It, It fundamentally just means this. I'm laying control over my life to somebody else. And this is what happens. This extraordinary response is the immediate response that happens when we, when we comprehend grace. It's the natural result. And what I see here is something that we see in 1 John. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because God first loved us. When we understand and comprehend God's love, it begins to do something in, in our hearts that nothing else can do. And the, and the reason for that is this. God is glorious in a way that nothing in this world is glorious. God's worth is, when we see it and comprehend it, His worth is so vast, so... You you can't even define it. But it would be like, if somebody goes and stands next to the Grand Canyon, here's here's, here's a landmark that I'm familiar with, I don't know what it is in, in maybe your home country, but when somebody is standing and taking in the Grand Canyon, nobody looks at that and says, I am great. <laughs> Nobody does. When you take in the Grand Canyon, you're fixated on that. And what you say to the person on your right or left, you say, that is amazing. How do you put it in the words? A picture doesn't do it justice. You need to see the vastness. You need to see just the raw power of creation. And when we see grace, this is what happens. We, we, we have a, there's not a box for it. We just know this is so far beyond anything I have un- ever seen or understood or known. And it's, in fact, it's so powerful, Mary didn't have to think twice. She hears the the grace that she's to receive and she just lays her life at God's feet. She says, it's yours. Do with it with, as you wish. If you say, I have a son, I will have a son. And there's probably a thousand, a million prayers that come after that. God, what do I do? How do I, be, how do I be a mother to a son? How do I parent kids? I got one that's perfect and three that are bad or four. How does this work? How do I not show favoritism? There's probably many, many prayers. But I want you to see what is, an ex- what is the normal response, what we would call extraordinary to grace. We lay our lives at Jesus' feet. And here's where I want to end. Maybe you're thinking, sometimes I read this, I read the scriptures, and I'm thinking, I wish I could know God like that. An angel appear to me, Gabriel appear to me, you know, maybe if you're you're a woman, uh, to be chosen to be the mother of Jesus. We think of that, we think, I wish God would show me that kind of grace. I wish God would show up in a powerful way like that in my life. And here's where I want to end. God's given you an even greater grace than Mary. Mary was chosen to be the mother of Jesus. But even Mary needed to receive forgiveness of her sins. And the only way that happened was to receive a greater grace. The whole reason Jesus was sent, Jesus was, came to die for the sins of the world. To receive the grace of having your sins forgiven, a new life being given, the very righteousness of God, we're told that we have been given everything in the heavenlies. We that Everything that Jesus could possibly earn, everything that he deserved by being the very Son of God, every privilege is ours in Jesus Christ. Mary received the blessing of being the mother of Jesus. Greater grace has been offered to you and me this morning. We don't have to sit and wonder, I wish I was like Mary. wish I was like Elizabeth. Something greater has been given, has been made available to every single one of us. And that is that through Jesus, God has made open the very riches of heaven, forgiveness, new life, Adopted as his sons and daughters. And the very bride of Christ to be in his church. There's no insignificant places. There's no insignificant people. And there's nothing that is impossible by God's grace. This morning, I want to invite you, if you have not responded to God's grace in your life, to respond as Mary, to lay your life down, to give God control and to receive what God has come to offer. We talk about the gospel. We take ourselves out of this story and then talk about the story of why Jesus came. God has made salvation in him through Jesus Christ, available to you. I invite you to receive that this morning and to know God's grace. Let's pray. God, this morning we took a look at the second story of Christmas, the story of Mary and Joseph. God, we praise you for this redemption narrative, this redemption story. This is the story that shapes us. This is our story. This is a story in our family. It's a story of what you're doing among the nations. And today I pray that we would know and understand your grace. That every single one of us, like Mary, has been given favor. We've been given undeserved blessing. And knowing Jesus Christ, and I pray that you would give us the courage to respond. pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.